This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. There are five fears that stop human beings. Five fears that stop people. You have all five fears. I have all five fears. It's completely normal and natural to have all these five fears. What your level of fear is on each of the five fears is unique to you. Some are higher, some are lower. But one thing for sure is that based on the circumstance you're in, one of these five fears will stop you. will just stop you. And you'll see other people keep going, but you'll be stopped. You freeze, you get paralyzed, you can't move. It's what's called a glass ceiling in personal development work. It's a glass ceiling, meaning you see other people reaching beyond it, but you just keep hitting your head on it because you've hit one of your fears. The five fears that every person has... Just get a little more ink out of this thing. Five fears that everyone has is... uh, The fear of rejection... The fear of of failure, the fear of being out of control, the fear of the unknown, and finally the fear of pain and suffering. Here I mean physical pain and suffering. These are the five fears. They're universal to human beings. Uh, There's some cities have these fears in greater volume. For example, rejection is a very West Coast kind of California issue. Los Angeles, Hollywood. It's all about how you look in the face of others. East Coast, you get a lot of failure issues, you know, because it doesn't matter what you look like if you're succeeding. Yeah, you're, you're what, you got what it takes. Out of control is popular in um, Toronto, uh, which is interesting why that is. I've never studied why that is, that Toronto, out of control, is the dominant fear. Um, but there's other obvious ones, like um, South Africa. Jews from South Africa are a fraction of the 10% of whites in a completely tribal land. The uh, unknown is, uh, you know, Israel. <laughs> Israel's got the big unknown. And uh, pain and suffering would be any war-torn place that's going on, you know, any place that's dealing with wars and stuff like that. Now, it also hits ages, interestingly, according to this order. I only made this order based on popularity because the most popular fear is rejection, the second most is failure. I mean, if you actually just test a population, these will be, you know, if you had it all mixed in, uh, groups of human beings, this is the order of popularity. Dominant, less dominant, less dominant. Um, But it also goes according to age. When you uh, become self-aware for the first time, it's usually around three and a half years old, three to four years old, you become self-aware. So the very first thing you have is rejection. Why? You're a clumsy little kid. You walk like a penguin. You're, um, 
you know, your vocabulary is extremely limited, and it seems everything you say is the funniest thing everyone ever heard, you know, and uh, you, you just don't know how to look good and, uh, in the eyes of others. It's impossible to look good. At three years old, looking good is just not going to be on the menu, you know, and there's no way to look good at that age. Um, but later, when you start getting a little more adept at things and, um, and uh, you can now, like, you're in the world of doing things, your fear of failure kicks in. And then you, what you'll notice is people are dealing with the fear of failure for many, many years until they hit uh, generally around 40, 50. You see, we're all born with... Um, you know, first we're fetuses, which is a total question mark, the shape. It's like a question mark. And then you're born, but you're really very mushy. So you're still kind of a question mark. And then you grow up, and you're really just this question mark that's kind of growing and growing and expanding. But what happens in your, in at least in the Jewish world, in your uh, early 20s, but uh, in the secular world, maybe up in your 30s, is you start turning those question marks into exclamation points. Meaning all those questions like, who will I marry? Where will I live? What will be my income? You know, all those questions. What's going to be my commitment Jewishly? All these different questions become exclamation points. This is who I'm marrying. This is where I'm going to live. This is how I'll make my living. This is my career. You know, this is my... You turn... Those question marks all become exclamation points. But what happens when you hit your late 40s, 50s, is you've now got all, all your seeds you planted back in your 20s have now, they've grown into trees themselves. And you've got to somehow hold it all together. You're holding it all together. And, you know, once you hit your late, mid-40s, late-40s, 50s, you're holding it all together. And the fear of being out of control, because it, it can hemorrhage anywhere, you know, the, the situation feels quite out of control especially with teenagers acting like knuckleheads, you know, right when they should be getting ready for marriage, they're acting like mashuganas. And, uh, and not to mention what it takes financially to, to manage it all. And, and you're not like, you're not a hot, in your 50s, you're not a hot item on the job market if your job or industry suddenly, you know, tanks. Yeah, now how are you going to float it all? You see how out of control is getting pretty scary? But then what happens is, as you know, you start like, you know, you need a little oil for your hinges, you know. You get a little older, you start to realize, I'm going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. And that is, it's the greatest unknown. You know, the final frontier, death. You have no idea where that is, what that is. Now, of course, if you're raised in Torah, you're living in Torah. So for us, we get to beat. This is the one thing we get to beat. The unknown, we got to be. We got that beat when it comes to death, because we all know that you know life is like a divorce and death is like marriage. You know, I know this sounds a little bit like a death cult, but but we we believe that our souls have eternity to them. We've come from a place called the world of souls, Olam Haneshamot. We've come from there. We've been put in these bodies, which are very uncomfortable, and it's totally awkward that we have to go to the bathroom, and. <laughs> And then at the end of our lives, we go back to the world of souls. We're home. We're married. That's why a, a, a yurt site is called a hilula, which means a wedding. So that part we're not so worried about because if anything, if you meet the average Jew who's uh, keeping Judaism there, 
they're using up every last ounce of their body. My wife said that when she gets to the end after raising her eight kids, you know, and all she puts out every day to this moment, she says when she gets upstairs, she's just going to take her body. It's going to be like, it's going to be draped like this. And she's just going to take her body and she's going to throw it at God. Here it is. Used up every last drop. By the way, she goes to gym, to yoga, to Pilates, and, uh, and brisk walks everywhere. Yeah. She's not like, you know, she's definitely keeping it together, but she's, she's here to use it. Use it. Last drop. Now, I just want to mention one more thing, is that death is a gift also because it makes you put on your running shoes. You know, if you look at the Torah, people are living like hundreds of years. So we already see what teenagers are like in adolescence. They think they're going to live forever. And they know they're not. They know they're not. And they still act like they're going to live forever. In the secular world, you act like you're going to live forever until you're in your 30s. Plus. So God introduced death as, you know, and also lifespan, bringing it down towards, you know, at least 120 is what we like to say. It, It gets you to wake up a bit. You know, it's like, it's like finals. There's nothing like a final in university to get you to study. You know, it gets you to put on your running shoes when you have midterms and finals. You'll actually get busy with things. And we have a reminder of that every single week with Shabbat. Because everyone knows, once Shabbat hits, you cannot cook another thing. You cannot hit another light switch. You're done. You can't drive anywhere to go get anything. You're done. And that is a reminder of the end of our lives. Shabbat is a reminder of the end of our lives. That there's a point where any mitzvah that you can do will only be because you have a body. And so, your day, if you're a young kid, you're on Sunday. If you're in your 20s, you're on Monday. If you're in your 30s, you're on Tuesday. If you're in... You know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, it's Wednesday. If you're in your 60s or 70s, it's Thursday. If you're in your 80s, it's Friday. I'm getting ready for Shabbat, because whatever you cook is what you eat. What you cook in this world is what you'll eat in the next. And we have that reminder every single week. Very rare you'll see anyone preparing for Shabbat on Sunday. But smart people prepare. They do a little something on Wednesday, at least. Much more on Thursday. And then, you know, Friday. I don't know what your houses look like on Fridays, but if you're ever coming to us, please don't show up until after sundown. If you don't want to get hit by a train. And it reflects, when you go to uh, old folks' homes, if you go to... You go to secular old folks' homes. I, I'm a musician, so I have to go visit these places and stuff. When you go to a secular old folks' home, so, I, I mean, I, it's painful for me to watch this, but you'll see some old lady or some old man um, walking from the dining room back to their room. <laughs> it is a test in patience. It's something, because, you know, their joints aren't working so well. They're, they're real small steps. But there's also, there's no rush. So it's something like this. I mean, I go out of my mind. It's like, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. I'm like, and I see their room is like 200 yards away down this really long hall. 
I would like pick them up and take them the rest of the way. Now, elderly people in Jerusalem, okay, their joints work longer because I mean, we're, we walk everywhere here, so your joints work longer. We're not sitting in, we're not driving around Oldsmobiles up to the shopping malls. You know, we're, we're actually walking through the shuk, putting vegetables in bags. You know, just keeps your joints moving when you're throwing those, you know, cucumbers in there. And, the, and not to mention you're going to be walking home like the Neanderthal man, you know, the missing link, you know, walking home with your knuckles hitting the floor by the time you get home. And the, it helps with longevity of your joints and your muscles and stuff. I'm sure there's a lot less arthritis here just from the amazing amount of use that people have to their dying day. And in Jerusalem, most people make their own breakfast the day they die. So the, um, but if you check them out when they get really old, so then they're really old. I'm talking like, you know, they're in their 90s or something. When they, when they get really to that age, they still, they can't take big steps, but watch them walk. Watch the elderly of Jerusalem walk, the real white beard, shining, glowing people. They walk like this. They literally walk like that. And they, they can't move much better than the people in the old folks' homes you know, that, I've, that I've gotten to visit in America. They don't have much more you know, movement available to them. But they're in a rush because it's Friday afternoon and the sun's on the horizon. And they got mitzvahs to do. As long as you're still in this body, you got work to do. That was all parenthetical to our class, by the way. I hope you enjoyed all those sound bites. That was just for fun. Let's get back to our class. There are five fears that every person has. And where we got to was the unknown. And then there's pain and suffering. Pain and suffering is, uh, sadly, that's where my father's at now. He's 85. He should be well. Shem should bless him to have no pain in his life. But he's, uh, but it's, he's, he goes to bed every night with the fear of what's going to hurt tomorrow, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to be the next thing that comes up. Because your body, your body's filled with different systems. And those systems have been running for years and years and years and years, and they're, they're getting tired, these systems, and the upkeep's getting harder and harder. And it becomes a fear of pain and suffering towards the end of one's life. Um, this is another reason why uh, we have to uh, work on consciousness. Because the more conscious you are, the less of a body you are. Meaning that's why the, the, you have to become the consciousness of your body, not your body taking over your consciousness. I'll give you an example. Have you ever stubbed your toe? I just saw a guy stub his toe in the mikvah. I really felt bad for this guy. It was like a cartoon. His big toe was just like... It's like throbbing. And, and he was just like... He was his toe. When you stub your toe, you are your toe. It's like your whole being just like folded up into your, a toe. Because when you stub your toe, you are a toe. You ever had your back go out? You're your back when your back goes out. You don't exist anymore. You're just the pain in the back. You're your back. Headache, you're ahead. But someone who has become disciplined in the art of conscious living, where you're identified not with the body, but rather with the soul, which is your consciousness. 
when you become soul conscious, and then someone hits the stage of the pain and the suffering, well, you may have some pain, but you can get rid of the suffering. Do you think, nice people, that you can have pain without suffering because you started working on this when you were, uh, when you turned, let's say you all decide, I'll start working on this when I'm 75. You think, you think you know, it's going to work? Oh, yeah. If you want to not suffer at the end of your life with, when, the, when the systems are shutting down, which can come, lead to a lot of pain, don't wait till then to become someone who lives with soul consciousness, being a conscious person. Now is your chance. This is your chance. Most people that age, if I imagine me, you know, a consciousness trainer, I train people in consciousness, what I do. You know, besides reaching out to Jews, I train people in consciousness in my seminars. So imagine me going up to an 85-year-old and saying, my father, just me going up to my father and say, okay, Dad, we're going to breathe. We're going to do deep breathing, and we're just going to become the awareness around the pain. Okay, we're going to be the awareness around the pain. My father would look at me like I fell off some kind of star or something, like, you out of your mind the awareness around the thing. You'd probably mimic me and like make fun of it. But you all know that you better be the awareness around the pain or you are the pain. You are the back. You are the stomach. You are the headache. You are the stiff arthritic limbs and joints. You got to practice now. And every ounce, every ounce of every lesson you will ever learn in Judaism if you look deeper into it, you can boil it down, it's to get you conscious. It's to get you to be focused on the soul. You could show me the most mundane piece of Talmud that's just about like, I don't know, whose object is it anyway? You know, let's say it's a fight over an object or something. Or, or it could be contract law. It could be real estate law. I don't know. The most mundane thing where you're like, what does this have to do with consciousness and my Discipline and being the awareness around the, the object we're fighting over. But I promise you, every single law, I could take you throughout the whole Torah. And if you, I'd be happy if you want to quiz me. Mention any law. And if you just think a little creatively, you will realize that it's just our sages, once again, getting you back to consciousness. Because when you live in consciousness, and I'll give you the example, by the way, I just mentioned a couple of business issues or a fight over an object. Let me give you that one for now, since I brought it up. Is uh, when you live in consciousness, you are me and I am you. I mean, when you're in consciousness, you're really, now you're soul-oriented, and you have a soul and I have a soul, so what's the difference? You know, I want to make sure you're eating too. I'm, just, I'm not going to take extra portion at the uh, lunch, because you are me and I am you. And that brings us to the laws of tzedakah. The word tzedakah doesn't mean charity. The word tzedakah means tzedek. It means, it means it's the scales. It's, it, it's apportionment. It's appropriateness. It's righteousness. Like, I had more than he did. Well, I want to share it. I want to share it. Tzedakah means doing the right things. It's making sure everyone's eating. 
No matter what mitzvah you look at, it will always bring you, no matter what halacha, even if it's in business. Because if you and I have a discrepancy in business, if you believe you deserved more than I did in this deal, and now we're both in front of a court case, in front of a judge, obviously a Jewish judge because we're Jews, you know, every city in the world defers to Jewish courts. You know that? Every city in the world defers to Jewish courts. Meaning uh, in the, every city has Jewish courts, real courts that are run only by Torah. And we are allowed to go do everything we want in there judiciously there. And, uh, and whatever the judgment is will hold civilly. No matter where you are, it holds civilly. We're the fathers of the courts. Okay? Judaism and Talmudic law is the fathers of all courts. We, we developed this. We're the ones who created it. And it holds up in all civil courts. So yours and my discussion there, sorry, discrepancy, our conflict, the resolution of that conflict, the law that will come up in the Talmud between us will, to, will be to create equity between us. It will figure out what we really owe so that we're one. If you lose and I win, you will leave happy. If I lose and you win, I will leave happy. We always leave happy because we want what's right. Because we're conscious. It's leading to consciousness. Whereas when you go into your egocentric loss of consciousness, where you become possessed by your own egoic mind, represented by Greece in the Hanukkah story, when you get stuck in that mind, so then if you lose, you lost. You get that? And he won. When you're in the egoic mind, you're, you're a social Darwinist. Less for you. More for him is less for you. When you're in consciousness, when you live from soul, so then we're, we are one. And you'll see that every word of Judaism you will ever hear is to get you to that consciousness. But sadly, I mean, the next thing is just going to be a little commentary. You can throw it in the wastebasket if you want. This is just rabbi spouting off here. Um, sadly, uh, Judaism's seen by most people as a religion, not as a, uh, a discipline in creating conscious living. It's seen as a religion, and people will literally dot their I's and cross their T's and live perfectly halachic lives and never get to consciousness. And they will do very unconscious things in the way, meaning they never break halacha, but uh, egoic minds at work, disconnections of fathers and daughters, disconnections of husbands and wives, disconnections of siblings to one another. Your own blood, your own blood can become a drama a drama that has led to icy relationships while keeping kosher and keeping Shabbat and having your tefillin with your little mirror perfectly in the middle. When every ounce of the Torah and all its laws were just trying to get you to be a soul, just to be a conscious soul, to be a person of spirit. 
I don't think you should throw that in the wastebasket. I think that was important to hear. Let's look at these five fears. When experienced from consciousness. But before we do that, let's do a little exercise in consciousness to make sure we're all there. Rather than talk about consciousness, let's do an exercise to get us all to consciousness. As I said before, there is a conflict between your egoic mind and your conscious, you know, broader, you know, expanded self. So what we'll do is we'll just, uh, we'll let our egoic mind be a little quieter for a moment, and we'll slow it down, and then we'll get ourselves into a broader space, and then we will apply that conscious mind to these five fears, which are the, you know, the really the worst part of being a human being, is this is what's stopping you. These five fears are what stopped you in life. So let's see how they survive, how the shadowy Fears survive when we shine the spotlight of consciousness upon them and then see what kind of life you have. So let's do a little exercise just to get ourselves conscious and then we will uh, we'll move to shine the light on those fears. Let's begin by just sitting uh, comfortably and uh, do a little breathing. Uh, why? Why breathing? There's a lot of reasons we can breathe, but for us right now, the breathing's only to get your mind to slow down. Because if you start thinking only about your breathing, which doesn't require any thought, breathing's involuntary. But by focusing on your breathing, your mind's going to slow down. And what a pleasure to slow down the mind a little bit and get yourself more conscious. Did I just say the word more? And get yourself conscious. Here we go. We're going to do a little deeper breathing. It'll be from the abdomen. So you'll notice on the deep breath, sit comfortably, good posture. Give your lungs somewhere to be. Okay? Um, you'll notice my shoulders and chest do not expand with a deep breath. Ready? It's only here. Look here. Feeling the balloon. Blowing out from the mouth. Releasing the air from the balloon. Feeling the balloon? Everyone breathe in. Show how fat you are to your little friends. And then show them how thin you are while you blow out through your mouth. Together. Tight. Tight stomach. Inhale through the nose. Exhale through the mouth. Now we're going to do a double breath. This will be first the belly and then the chest. In through the nose. Chest. Hold. Out through the mouth. Through the nose, belly. Chest. Hold. Release through the mouth. Real slow. Purse your lips so that it comes out slow. As your belly contracts, keep blowing out. In through the nose. Chest. Hold. Breathing out through the mouth. Now close your eyes, please. Continue with this work. In through the nose, belly expands. Chest. Hold. 
and just focus on the energy between your eyes, on your forehead, right between your eyes. Release through the mouth. through the nose, belly, chest, hold, again focusing on the energy between your eyes, just focusing on that spot on your, the bottom of your forehead, right between the eyes, release through the mouth as your belly contracts. And now just breathing normally and focusing on your inner body. You have an outer body, and that's your skin and your nails, your hair. But inside of you is a whole inner body. It's the actual living stuff, where your pulse is pulsating, your blood is flowing, your muscles are firing or relaxed at this particular moment. It's an inner life force. Focus on that inner life force of yours. Let it oscillate, the focus of relaxation of your inner body from the tip of your toes. Focus now on the tip of your toes and let it move like a wave at the count of three up to the tip of your head. One, two, three. Letting it move its way up your legs to your torso and up to your head, the tip of your head. Now, from the tip of your head, back to your toes. One, two, three. Release. And like a wave of relaxation, moving down in your body, all the way down to your toes. And now, just breathing normally and focusing on the fact that God is not just surrounding creation, but God is also filling creation. As before there was a creation, God existed in the absolute oneness, although there was nothing yet created. And given that all that there was before creation was that oneness, that consciousness of God, God therefore created the world out of that consciousness. In other words, the whole world is the consciousness of God. So allow that consciousness that God is in creating the physical world to fill the room. Feel yourself like you're in a cocoon, surrounded by the consciousness of God, the very stuff he created the world with. And realize that presence of God is surrounding you like a cocoon, in your, on the air that's touching your skin, in the fibers of your clothing. But realize, why would you stop there? It's in your skin cells, your blood cells, your bone cells brain cells. God is creating you with tremendous precision, care, desire for your existence. God wants you here. It's an unconditional love that he wants you here with because you'll notice no matter how you behave, bananas are not less sweet, sunsets are not less beautiful. It's an unconditional love. The world remains gorgeous.
take a few moments and just feel that God is creating you. You're like jello in, in that you're, you're like congealed consciousness as God, which is the ultimate consciousness preceding creation, congealed his consciousness into the creation. And you yourself are a congealed consciousness inside the creation. Not only are you loved and wanted here by God, but he's also orchestrating all the events of your life. In fact, how you got to this very moment where you sit in your chair right now is all part of tremendous orchestration, the details of which are mind-boggling. They're unfathomable and they could never be counted or ever understood. Yet they have all, in the end, equaled you in your chair right now, experiencing this moment. And take a moment and feel the security that just like God managed all those details, just as God managed all those details, he'll be handling the rest as well. He's got you covered. He got you till now. He's going to get you in the future. So feel that security. He's got you covered. He can handle this. Feel that feeling of security when you're in the consciousness of God. It's not just that you're going to be fine. It's that you're going to be great. And experience as well the feeling of harmony. That everything that ever happened to you, is happening to you, will happen to you, is all part of a great story. Like in an instrumental piece that has perhaps dissonant notes, but when you play the whole chord together, it's harmonious. Your life might have had some difficulty. There might have been tough times which are like the dissonant note in the chord that the piano player is playing with all ten fingers. But when you play all ten together, when you look at the big picture of your life, you'll see that there's a harmony to it all, that it all makes sense. Take a few moments and feel the harmony. And now, with that consciousness, open up your eyes on the count of five, one, two, three, four, five, opening up your eyes. And stay totally conscious now. Stay conscious. Go to your inner body now. Close your eyes. Go back to the inner body. Just focus on your inner body. And now open your eyes looking at your hand. So you're still focused on your inner body looking at your hand. And just focus on the inner body, the life force in your hand. And now slowly look up from your hand the room around you. Staying, but don't focus on me. Focus. You can look at me, but you can focus only on the inner body while looking at me. Don't take your focus off the body. Your body. Keep focus on your own body and your own life force in this centered and grounded space while looking at other things. And that's very slow thinking. Now we've slowed you down. 
That was all an exercise to slow you down. And to get conscious, God conscious. Now, nowhere inside your brain will you be found. Brain science has searched the brain. They've mapped it. They know where hunger is, where, where uh, hot, cold, uh, love, uh, ambition. They've found it all. Desire. It's all there. They've mapped everything. And they were, but they weren't searching for those things necessarily. What they were searching for was you, like the actual point of reference you call you, like the actual you. That's what they were looking for. Well, they got to the other side and they never found it because you're not in there. You're not in there at all. You have a brain, but you are not your brain. And as we said earlier, when someone stubs their toe, they become a toe. When someone has a headache, they're a head. When someone has a backache, they become their back. Well, guess what? We're all in a lot of trouble. You know why? Because of your brain and the consciousness of your brain... you wind up thinking that that is you. Meaning that your brain is you. Because it's got content. It's got lots of commentary. Have you ever noticed how much commentary your brain has? (laughs) Lots of commentary in there. And it's so darn loud and so darn fast, your brain never stops. According to uh, psychology today, brain science, they say you think 30,000 thoughts a day. That's a lot of commentary, and most of it pretty unnecessary. And because of all that content and because of all that commentary, you actually, it becomes your stub toe, meaning you become it. You become the commentary of your own brain. And that ain't cool, because you're not in there. It ain't you. You're never going to find you there. I mean, I'll show you a picture. If you want to see a picture, it'll make it any clearer. I think this will uh, drive the point home here. But this just, you know, you'll, I think everyone in the room will agree with me when I show you this picture, that this just ain't you. It's uh, someone left uh, an item. I think you'll all agree that this is not you, unless you're having a really bad hair day. That ain't you. But with a massive amount of commentary going on all day long, you become it, and you get reduced to that. And no wonder the world looks hella scary. No wonder the world looks so scary. Because if you think you're that, well, good luck dealing with that. With these five fears. Let's shine our light of consciousness now. Who you really are. The congealed consciousness of, of 
God. Raspberry Jello. Let's shine that consciousness onto these fears. Okay, everyone just get to your conscious state. And you're wondering how you're coming off for others. Rejection. How am I coming off for others? Well, what does that mean exactly? Is that going to mean my finances? Is that going to mean the looks of the body that houses my consciousness, my soul? What exactly is it that I'm going to be worrying about here? Probably something to do with my looks, something to do with my money, maybe something to do with my family's reputation. Does that sound like conscious living? When you shine the light of consciousness on rejection, it just fades. You'll see that conscious living people, when they get old, they don't run to plastic surgeons. Every line on her face is a story. It's a a world of wisdom. It's a badge of honor, a conscious life. shine the light of consciousness onto failure, meaning how well you perform. So a conscious person is someone who gets in tune with their actual gifts. Unconscious people try to become like med students because their father is a medical doctor. And then they try to apply skills that they just don't have to medicine. That's very unconscious living. Conscious people apply their actual skill sets, like this, the gifts they were given from the creator of the universe. They actually apply those, and boy, do they succeed. But again, when you go to the egoic mind that could not stand failure, who cares about failure when you're in consciousness? give you an example. I was once uh, putting my Taylor guitar in the first class closet on an LL flight. And this particular flight, unlike most LL flights, um, the whole first class was empty and the whole business class was empty. But it was in the economy class. There was not a seat left. And I'm there and the stewardess is being very nice because there's a ton of room and she helps me put my guitar away. And I said to her, you know, you think there's a lot of competition at the top? She said, oh, yeah, a lot of competition at the top. I said, well, I don't know, looking down there at economy, it looks like all the competition's over there. And she looks over there, and we're both looking, and there was like almost a fist fight already breaking out over the, by the overhead compartment about six rows back. And, uh, and it just it looked like a jungle. Only conscious people realize that the price for success is failure. Either you're willing to fail and pay that price, or you'll just eventually bump into something and call that what you always wanted. A conscious person looks at their skills, looks at the gifts God gave them, and then they apply them to life. And if you're smart, you monetize it. 
and it works. But the unconscious person, they are so afraid of failure. Because when you are not conscious, this is like a, another sore toe, a stub toe. And the last thing you will ever put up with is a failure. So what happens is you fail here, you go somewhere else. You fail there, you go somewhere else. Eventually, you'll hit something. Whereas highly successful people, go meet them, go interview them. And I know anyone who's retired, they'll be happy to take you out to lunch. Once they retire. You will hear the story. If you want to hear the story of their success, what you're really going to be hearing is the story of their what? Their failures. And if you really want to see a great little clip on YouTube, look up Michael Jordan's... Just write Michael Jordan failure. And you will see a Nike commercial that knocks them all out. He, all he talks about is his missed shots, including some that lost the championships. The greatest basketball ever lived. Did I just say basketball? The greatest basketball player <laughs> that ever lived. When you're living in consciousness and God is running the show, he's been orchestrating unfathomable detail, unfathomable details. In unbelievable orchestration with precision beyond belief. You can measure when the moon and what position it will be in 20 years from now to a millimeter in his system. It, it, the accuracy is insane in your own life. Then the details get incredible of what it takes, meaning what God is investing just for you. Just for you. Little old you. Incredible. And then you shine that light on your fear of being out of control What's going to be? Well, what's going to be more is the fear of the unknown, sorry. When you shine that light on the fear of being out of control, which will show up in all kinds of ways. I'm not going to go into details there, but we all avoid lots of controlled people, dominating people, which can be parents, can be law, can be rabbis, can be, can be God himself. But when you're from the conscious place... You can breathe, because Baruch Hashem, God's in control. And you don't have to be. He's got you covered. He got you till now. He's going to get you the rest of the way. And you shine that light of consciousness onto the unknown. And what, am I expected to be a prophet? And Judaism teaches me, if I have to deal with unknowns and I have big decisions, speak to my rabbi. Speak to my rabbi. If he can't handle it, he'll send me to someone else. But we, we have a tradition for that. You don't make your own mistakes. Let the rabbi make the mistake. Just kidding. But seriously, you know, everyone wants to sing I did it my way at the end of their life. That's, that's not Jewish. The Judaism of consciousness is you're, you're guided. Life is guided. Why do you got to make your own mistakes? Smart people learn from others. And as we spoke about earlier, you shine the light of consciousness on pain, physical pain and suffering. It's, it's only the body that hurts. You're doing great. 
In fact, it's sunset. At the end of life, when the body's kind of fallen apart, it's sunset. It's about to be Shabbos. Sun's about to drop. Shabbat's about to come in. And you're going to eat all the food you cooked throughout your lifetime. You stay conscious throughout it. You've got to get that now. Don't wait till then to think you're going to suddenly get good at this. All of Judaism is only there to get you conscious. Every mitzvah, every halacha, every custom, every act of service and prayer and every other shaking of vegetation and all these different things we're doing, dwelling in sukkahs, they're all just to bring you to consciousness. Please take this work we did today and live it. Don't leave it in here. Take it with you for the rest of your lives. Amen. Shalom, everyone. Uh, just re- regarding the training I do for people, is, uh, it's called The Possible You. The possible you is your conscious you, as opposed to the egoic mind, which is the rerun, the rerun you, that everything seems to morph back into the same old issues, no matter what you do. And you can check it out, thepossibleyou.org, anyone wants to see. But it was a pleasure. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.